0: The first book of Kings was likely written by the prophet Jeremiah between 560 and 540 BC. It continues forward from the book of Samuel during Israel's kingdom period. As King David is dying, he charges his son and successor Solomon to remain faithful to God's covenant with Israel. This faithfulness is seen as Solomon humbly asks God for wisdom in order to rule the kingdom justly. God graciously grants him this request. Carrying out God's plan and his father's desire, Solomon constructs a massive temple for the Lord to dwell among his people. He goes on to build himself an even more elaborate palace. Solomon's faithfulness, wisdom, and wealth gains him the attention of the early world, and he begins to form political alliances by marrying the daughters of neighboring countries. Solomon begins adopting the foreign religions of his many wives and implements their idol worship throughout Israel. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne followed by many kings, guided by the same greed and lust for power that ruled Solomon's latter years. At this time, the northern tribes of Israel secede to form a rival country, splitting the kingdom in two. Both kingdoms are far off track from living as God's covenant people, on a path toward ruin and destruction. It is at this point that God raises up Elijah the first of many prophets, to call his chosen people back to him. Would you pray with me?
1: God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to to open up your word, and not only to read it, but to be read by it. God, as I look out and just see the church that you have gathered here this morning, God, it's it's beautiful. We are so different. And yet, all need to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm just going to ask you for help. I'm not up to that, to speak a message that will land in every heart, but, but you are. And so, would you show up and would you open our eyes more and more to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, the true King. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. i got a question for you this morning. Who is the worst boss you can think of? Some of you probably have a person that you have been under their authority. Some of you maybe be picturing the the popular television sitcom, The Office. From 2005 to 2013, Steve Carell played Michael Scott in the hit TV show, The Office, Um, A lovable but completely incompetent boss of a make believe paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania called Dunder Mifflin. And the show is hilarious because it it pokes at corporate culture and inter office politics and how little work actually can get done in a workday. But the show is mostly hilarious because of Michael Scott, the boss. He's clueless. Moments with him interacting with people underneath him are so cringeworthy, aren't they? I mean, he's often grossly inappropriate and leads a completely unproductive team. But the whole thing, I think, that makes it such a funny show is he's completely oblivious to how tone-deaf he is. He thinks he's an awesome boss. Um, Even in the original pilot, he bought himself that mug, world's best boss. And if that doesn't say it all, I don't know what does. Why do I bring up the office? Well, not just so that we can laugh, but I actually think in 1 Kings chapter 12, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, tries to give Michael Scott a good run for his money on how not to use authority. But instead of managing a paper company that's not hitting its projected numbers, we see that Rehoboam's incompetence is far more devastating as it leads the people of God into idolatry and toward a divided kingdom. And this story is not just about a a failure of leadership and what we can learn from it, although it is that. It's an incredibly important turning point in the biblical story, the biblical narrative. And we see with shocking speed how it can go from a high point under King Solomon where the nations are flocking to learn from him. Where he makes all of these alliances and expands the borders to so quickly how they can turn from trusting and following Yahweh as Lord. So let's read it. It it unfolds for us in five acts. 1 Kings chapter 12, the first five verses is act 1, the problem and and the proposal. Rehoboam went to Shechem. This is right after his father Solomon dies in chapter 11. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent him and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, "'Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you.' He said to them, "'Go away for three days, then come again to me.' So the people went away. So what's the problem? The problem was that King Solomon, in his ambition, had driven the people too hard. Yes, he had built the temple to God, and it was a glorious thing. He constructed a great palace for himself. He had made alliances with the surrounding nations. He had built more than anyone previously. But that actually came at a significant cost to the people that he was leading. Heavy taxes... And forced conscripted labor, or slavery, was a regular thing to the people of God. And Solomon had strained them to a breaking point so that when he dies, they come to Rehoboam, his son, and say, we'd be happy to serve you as king, but could you lighten up a little bit? Could you take it easy? And the fact that Rehoboam doesn't immediately grant their request, or at least consider it significantly, shows how detached he is from reality, growing up in the palace. He doesn't see what the everyday man is experiencing under the glorious but brutal rule of his father. So act two, Rehoboam gets advice from two different sources. We read in verse six, "'Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men "'who had stood before Solomon his father "'while he was yet alive, saying, "'How do you advise me to answer the people?' And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you, lighten it for, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Pretty radically different advice, isn't it? From the older men, I think we could say the wiser men, it's, hey, Rehoboam, lighten their load. Serve them, and they will serve you. It's good advice. It's leading him towards servant leadership, considering the needs of his people. Lighten up, they say, and they will serve you joyfully. And then he dismisses them and brings around his, his cronies, his frat brothers, so to speak. And the counsel he gets from the younger man is, hit him harder. Show him who's boss. Show him how tough you are. And then they add, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Can I just say, that's a conservative rendering and translation that softens the meaning and the vulgarity of what he's talking about. How do we say this in mixed gendered company? But he says, my little one is bigger than my father's thighs. You connect the dots. Did the Bible really say that? Yes, that was the advice that he got. If you think my father cracked whips, I will whip you with scorpions, either a metaphor or a a really horrible kind of whip that you would never use on your people. This is exactly the kind of advice you would expect from a group of fraternity brothers, right? Who think that sexual potency and conquest is what makes a man a man. To show him how tough you are and strong you are. Now, if Rehoboam was a teenager or even a man in his 20s, we might be able to somehow give him a pass here. But what we learn a couple chapters later is that Rehoboam is 41 years old when this is taking place. If you think my dad was tough, I'm going to be even tougher. This kind of bravado of sexual conquest, and I'm tougher than you, is what men who don't know what it means to be a man think manhood is all about. And this lie, unfortunately, is alive and well today. It's been around for a long time. Do you want to know what true manhood is? It's servant leadership. It's using the strength that God has given you so that those in your care flourish and thrive It's standing up to evil in all of its forms, including the evil that exists in your own heart. Guys, if the only categories that we have for young men in figuring out what it means to be a man is toxic masculinity or passive abdication, then they'll wonder there are so many guys that are struggling. Why not rather look to the real man, Jesus, who shows us that true life is found in putting others' needs ahead of your own. He lived the most human and, dare I say, manly life imaginable. So Rehoboam is about to put on a clinic in toxic masculinity on how not to lead as a servant, or frankly, how not to lead at all, for that matter. He has a choice between being a servant leader or an insecure leader filled with bravado, and he gets it wrong. Before we move on, It's important, I think, for us to ask, in the areas where God has given us authority, in the areas where we have influence and leadership and power, are you a servant leader who puts others' needs ahead of your own ego, who cares about those in your care and wants to lighten their load and be a blessing to them? Or are you an insecure leader filled with bravado and selfish ambition, so insecure that you have to brag about how tough you are and how much you've accomplished. There's a book that I recommend to most leaders. I've been reading it for almost 20 years now called The Way of the Shepherd. And the last chapter has something that has just always stuck with me. And it's this. Someone will pay the price for leadership. Either the leader willingly pays it so that those in his, in his care can flourish and thrive Or those in his care, those under him, will pay the price for his poor leadership or her poor leadership. It's written to a business context, but I can't think of something that that embodies the kingdom of God ethos that us as Christians should embody as well as that book. Additionally, I read a great quote this week, and it's this, Bragging is your insecurity leaking out. It's by Kerry Newhoff. He's a pastor up in Canada. Bragging, is your insecurity leaking out? Maybe some of us need to put that somewhere. We'll see that regularly. Now, it's one thing to read this story and think, oh, Ray Boehm, what an idiot. I'm glad I'm not like that. But it's another thing altogether to embrace the high cost of being a servant leader like Jesus. Whether it's, whether it's for you at home as a husband or a parent or your place of employment or wherever you find yourself in authority, it will cost you something, but it will be good. So Rehoboam's a fool, and we see that in Act 3 as he makes his decision. Verse 12, so Jeroboam and all the peoples came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them, according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So Rehoboam takes the counsel of the stupid younger friends, decides not to serve, but to use this as a power play. But there's also another layer going on here. Did you catch it in verse 15? Who is this Jeroboam guy? Why is he so prominently speaking for the, the people of the, of the northern ten tribes? And then verse 15, we, so the king did not listen to the people, and we would expect it to say because he was an idiot. And that's true. True. But what it says is, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebad. So, what's going on here? Now, to understand this, we actually have to turn a page back in the Bible and look at chapter 11 and God's interaction with Solomon, Rehoboam's father. See, Solomon, toward the end of his life, turned his heart away from worshiping God and began to turn his heart after idols. And so God says to him in verse 9, "'The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded.'" "'Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, "'Since this has been your practice "'and you have not kept my covenant "'and my statutes that I have commanded you, "'I will surely tear the kingdom from you "'and will give it to your servant. "'Yet for the sake of David your father, "'I will not do it in your days, "'but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. "'However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, "'but I will, choose, I will give one tribe to your son "'for the sake of David my servant "'and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen.'" So Solomon, because you have 700 wives and 300 concubines and your, your heart is turned away from the Lord and followed after their God so that you now worship them in addition to Yahweh, I am going to tear the kingdom away. But for the sake of David, I'm going to do two things. I won't do it in your lifetime. I'll do it in the lifetime of your son. And even when I do that, I will leave one tribe that will remain faithful to him because I made a promise to David and I plan on keeping it. So chapter 12 isn't happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the course of human history where God has already made predictions and already made statements, and He is carrying it forward because of the rebellion of His Father. Now, there's a tension that exists in the scriptures and in our life, isn't there? That God is absolutely sovereign over the world and over human history, and human beings are free and make actual, real choices. So you might step back and be like, Did Rehoboam have a choice? Of course he did, and he chose wrong but God had already said it was going to happen. How does that work? Yes. (laughs) The Bible holds both of these truths to be true, and we are to hold these paradoxes in tension, that God is sovereign, that he is moving history forward according to his plans and his purposes, and yet we are responsible for the decisions that we made, just like Rehoboam was. The second half of 1 Kings chapter 11, we see Jeroboam rise in prominence, Solomon recognizes him as a man of ability, and so he puts him in charge of the heavy labor or forced labor up, uh, among Joseph's tribe. And a prophet by the name of Ahijah appears to Jeroboam after making a new garment. He tears it into 12 pieces, and this is what happens. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon for the sake of Jerusalem. Or, Solomon, and will give you ten tribes, but I have... That's what happens when you skip a line in your notes. Okay? And I will give you ten tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me. Now, when Solomon hears about this, how do you think he feels? Not so good. What kind of position do you think that puts Jeroboam in? Not very safe. And so do you know where he runs for safety? Egypt. Keep that in mind. Egypt's come up before in the biblical story, hasn't it? So finally, when Solomon dies, Jeroboam comes back from his exile and in many ways becomes the de facto speaker on behalf of the people. Act 4. The kingdom is divided and civil war almost takes place. Verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, "'What portion do we have in David? "'We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. "'To your tents, O Israel!' Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. Do you see how detached he is from reality? Oh, I'll just send their slave master over them and he'll just kind of keep order. What happens? They kill him. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. It's getting real for him, isn't it? So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. See, the prophecy is being fulfilled. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So it's getting bad, isn't it? Civil war is about to break out. This guy who's completely detached, who had everybody saying, we will follow you, if only you would just lighten the load, now is going to attack his very relatives and people to unite the country again. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord. Isn't that shocking? (laughs) They listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So from this point forward, in the Bible story, there is no longer one united nation or people of God. There is the northern kingdom of Israel, including the ten tribes that followed Jeroboam in rebellion against Rehoboam, the Davidic king. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, including Jerusalem, that remains faithful and faithful to David's heir. The northern kingdom goes from this point in 930 B.C. until 722 B.C. when God raises up the Assyrians, a brutal people, to come in, bring judgment on them, to sack the northern kingdom, and to send the people of God into exile." The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little longer. It lasted until 586 BC when their sin finally hit a boiling point and God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to come in and judge the people and exile them to a land not their own. And so from this point forward, we see two different peoples often warring with one another, two sets of kings. Most of the time, they are ungodly. And almost a devastating war that would have wiped them both out. So... This is, this is important for us to understand the flow of the narrative. That's why we're dealing with this passage today. But, but does it, does it kind of maybe provoke you? Okay, Rehoboam was a loser. <laughs> what kind of king is Jeroboam going to be? He was obviously oppressing the people, and so Jeroboam now is the deliverer. He's leading people out from this oppressive rule and regime. Maybe he's going to be the godly king that they need and that they expect. What do you think? Yeah, not so much. Verse 25, we see Jeroboam's story. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord. Well, we wouldn't want that. To Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, because that works out really well when you make calves out of gold, right? And he said to the people, You have gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We've heard that exact line before. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not of the Levites, like God had commanded. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam, when he gets his moment to shine, doesn't honor God, but sets up a false idolatrous religion. Primarily, not for religious purposes, but for political purposes, expediency. He doesn't want the people to be religiously dependent upon the temple and upon Jerusalem because their hearts would go back then. And so what does he do? He sets up two alternate temples. He creates two golden calves in Bethel and in Dan, complete with their own priesthood, which is not out of the Levites like God had commanded. Now, (laughs) the the shocking stupidity of his own history. It's mind-boggling, right? I mean, when we read chapter 12 of Kings, there's just something in it that's wrong at every single level. And actually, you're meant to see it that way. You know, these references to Egypt and Exodus and golden calves... It's interesting that this is kind of a distorted Exodus story, isn't it? Instead of Pharaoh mistreating people and beating them and enslaving them and generally making their lives miserable, we now have Rehoboam, their very own king, doing exactly what Pharaoh did. And then we have Jeroboam functioning as both a Moses and an Aaron figure to lead the ten northern tribes out of this mistreatment in a mock exodus as he comes back from, get this, Egypt of all places, only to make the exact mistake that Aaron made, but not just once, twice. Setting up two golden calves, instituting his own feasts and religion, and causing the people to fall headlong into idolatry. It's almost like he set up a hybrid cult to the worship of Yahweh. Yet again, we see in the story of God that Israel has become the very thing that God was seeking to rescue them from. When they come into the land and they don't drive out the people, they essentially become sinful Canaan during the period of the Judges But now that they have a king of their own, a monarchy, a monarchy established by God, we think it's going to be better. It's going to do better. And we see glimpses of it it under Solomon as as the, the kingdom thrives and flourishes and the nations come and learn of his wisdom. We think, is this it? Finally, it's going forward. And it doesn't last. And Solomon's very son, even Solomon at the end of his life, becomes more like Pharaoh than like God. What's God going to do at this point? What would you do? Is God going to wipe them out totally and completely? I probably would have. I'll be honest. I'm done. How many mistakes can you make? No, God is a God rich in grace and mercy and steadfast love. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, showing mercy to generation after generation, but will not... Clear the guilty of sin. God is going to raise up prophets. He's like he started to do already, but will do so now more in force to call the people and to call the kings back to covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. We're going to get a glimpse of one of them next week in the prophet Elijah. Now, if the last three weeks have kind of been a big picture history, looking at the political struggle and what's going on at the large scale of the the biblical story... Think of next week as like a human interest story, that in the midst of all of this mess, God is still operating and moving and working among small people. There are still people that are faithfully seeking the Lord and trying to follow him, but that's next week in 2 Kings. See, the book of 1 and 2 Kings show the steady decline of the kings of Israel and Judah According to the author of the book, all 20 of Israel's kings were wicked, leading the people into greater and greater sin and idolatry, all of them perpetuating the sin of Jeroboam, which is essentially propagating this false religion, until God finally judges them and sends them into exile. Judah's kings are slightly better, with some of them acting in a righteous or a God-honoring way. But more often than not, it was a wicked king as well. And so the downward spiral continues for them as well and ends in judgment and exile. Now, what do we learn from this today? From a practical level, we can look at the pathetic leadership of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and learn about what not to do. Look at what ungodly leadership is and come to conclusions like this. Be a servant leader not an insecure or a domineering leader. Or, the ends don't justify the means. Just because something makes political sense doesn't mean that it's right and you should do it, Jeroboam. Or, do things God's way, trust him, and things will ultimately work out because if you plan your own way and execute your own plan, it's going to be a colossal mess, both of them. And all of those things are actually true. To be sure, servant leadership is good and godly and what we are called to do. There's no excuse to be a domineering leader. The ends don't justify the means. Now we need to hear that over and over and over again, right? You'll never regret doing things God's way. But underneath, I think all of these practical life lessons is a greater need. It's this, the need for a true and a perfect king who won't fail us, who won't let us down. A perfect king, one who, unlike Rehoboam, chooses to serve rather than to be served, even when it was within his rights to be served. He was God, but he took on the position of a servant, not only washing his disciples' feet, but dying for them as their substitute. That's our king. His name's Jesus. We need a king like Jesus who, unlike Jeroboam, didn't value political expediency over honoring God, but obeyed him perfectly his entire life, even when it cost him dearly. We need a king, Jesus, who, unlike Solomon, who started with all kinds of wisdom and promise, but to succumbed to temptation of riches and power and lust. One who would live faithfully till the end, who would be tempted in every way like you and I are, but without sin. Who wouldn't just hit at human wisdom from time, but would be the very embodiment of God's wisdom for us. His name is Jesus. And unlike Solomon, who hoarded his wealth and made people work extra hard for his ambitions, this king would leave the riches and the glory and the splendor of heaven and become poor. So that him, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich beyond our wildest dreams. That's the king that 1 Kings 12 points to. That's the king that the people of Israel desperately longed for but didn't get. Not once in Samuel or Kings or Chronicles. But that's exactly the king that Jesus Christ became for us. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And here's the good news of this king he came. And he served us by living for us, by dying for us, by defeating death for us through his resurrection. Everywhere that we failed, he succeeded. And not only has he done that for us, which we believe is good news, but he has made that the new rule or law or operating system in his kingdom. The one who served till the end, giving us Giving up his very life. Now, in our world where it seems like every day there's another scandal of power or leadership, another story of abusive leadership or someone that we esteem from afar turning out to be not who they said they were, we need leaders like that that will serve. But lest you think I'm simply pointing to human leaders that are going to be faithful in the church, I will tell you, Every human leader that you know will fall short in some way, but not King Jesus. He's the one that we look to, he's the one that never lets us down and never fails us. See, on the flip side, I'm sure looking out, you, just uh, you guys, you have had human leaders fail you. And some of you have been deeply wounded by those who were in authority over you who should have used that power to serve and to love and to create an environment for you to thrive and flourish, but they used it to abuse and to demean and to belittle and to wound. I want you to see the true king, the one who perfectly uses his authority, but I also want to caution you against something. The failure of human leaders do not give you the right to reject Jesus as your king. See, unlike any before or after him, he never leads you in a heavy-handed way, but neither is he a pushover in your life. Jesus is your king. He's not your life coach, giving you pithy advice or suggestions and life hacks to follow. He is your king, and he is to be obeyed but it is through obedience to this king that we find life. It is through his rule and reign in our life, even when it doesn't really make sense, that we find where to truly live. And sometimes it's costly, and sometimes it's hard, but brothers and sisters, it is good, and it's a different kind of kingdom that we are invited to live as part of. Let's pray. God, thank you, for showing us the full face of the failure of human leadership and evil. God, as we see that in Rehoboam, as we see that in Jeroboam, we also see that in our own lives, in our own hearts, where we have sometimes used power and authority to make much of ourselves and to be served. Where those in our care haven't flourished and thrived, but have been wounded and withered Because we've been asleep at the wheel. Or we've used it in an ungodly way. God, we confess our sin. We confess our sin seeing the ugliness and the blackness of it. At the same time seeing just how wonderful a savior Jesus is. The one who never lets us down. The one whose rule and reign will go on for all eternity. Help us to follow him as king. And help us to embody a different kind of leadership and authority that reflects that kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.